Good. Revelation chapter number 18. Um, last week we talked about the fall of ecclesiastical Babylon. We're not going to review that because it, it is heavy stuff. And so we're going to push forward. As a matter of fact, we're going to push forward very quickly through the fall of commercial Babylon. Uh, because many of you, uh, I know that this, this portion uh, chapter 17 and chapter 18 can be very confusing, and we can get very bogged down in it, and so I, I don't want that to happen. So what we're going to do is we're just going to quickly read Revelation chapter number 18, uh, just for content purposes, and then gather a few thoughts and finish up the outline from last week, and then uh, move on to Revelation chapter 19, which is when things get very exciting. And we're back to uh, easier things to understand in the book of Revelation as uh, we hit Revelation chapter 19, which really, Revelation chapter 19, in my opinion, can only be described in one word, and that's victory, um, because uh, everything begins to fall into place, uh, beginning with the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so, Revelation chapter number 18, we're going to start reading in verse number 1. It's a long chapter, uh, but uh, we're just going to read it for uh, the sake of, of content, and uh, then we'll look at the few thoughts that we have for the, the fall of commercial uh, Babylon, all right? Revelation 18, verse number 1. And after these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils, and the hold of every foul spirit, and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of their fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that you be not partaker of her sins, and that you receive not of her plagues. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. Remember her even as she has rewarded you, and double unto her double according to her works, and the cup which she hath filled to her double. How much she hath glorified herself and lived deliciously, so much torment and sorrow give her. For she saith in her heart, I sit a queen, and am no widow, and shall see no sorrow. Therefore shall her plagues come in one day, death and mourning and famine. And she shall be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord who judgeth her. And the kings of the earth who have committed fornication and lived deliciously with her shall bewail her and lament her uh, when they shall see the smoke of her burning. Standing afar off for the fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour is thy judgment come. And the merchants of the earth shall uh, weep and mourn over her. For no man buyeth their merchandise anymore. The merchandise of gold and silver and precious stones and of pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and all uh, fine and wood and all manner vessels of ivory and all manner vessels of most precious wood and of brass and iron and marble and cinnamon and odors and ointments and frankincense and wine and oil and fine flour and wheat and beast and sheep and horses and chariots and slaves and souls of men. And the fruits that thy soul lusted after are departed from thee. And all things which are dainty and goodly are departed from thee. And thou shalt find them no more at all. The merchants of these things which are made rich by her shall stand afar off for the fear of her torment. Weeping and wailing and saying, alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour so great riches is come. To not. And every shipmaster and all the company and ships and sailors and as many as trade by sea stood afar off. 
and cried when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like unto this great city? And they cast dust on their heads and cried, weeping and wailing, saying, Alas, alas, that great city, wherein were made uh, rich all that had ships in the sea by reason of her costliness, for in one hour she was made desolate. Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and ye holy apostles and prophets, for God hath avenged you on her. And a mighty angel took upon a stone like a great millstone and cast it into the sea, <clears throat> saying, Thus with violence shall that great city Babylon be thrown down and shall be found no more at all. And the voice of harpers and musicians and of pipers and trumpeters shall be heard no more at all in thee, and no craftsman of whosoever or whatsoever craft he be shall be found any more in thee, and the sound of a millstone shall be heard no more at all in thee, and the light of a candle shall shine no more at all in thee, and the voice of the bridegroom and of the bride shall be heard no more at all in thee. For thy merchants were the great men of the earth, for by, for, for by thy sorceries were all nations deceived. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all that were slain. What a amazing passage of scripture. When we talk about the literal fall of Babylon. Now we talked about last week, just in a quick review, that we believe that the, the great Babylon is not a city, but rather, or not a geographic location, but rather it is the evilness uh, within the world. And so we talked about how that uh, uh, ecclesiastical Babylon or the religious Babylon would fall, and now the commercial Babylon is, uh, is falling. So write at number two in your outline on that first outline that you have that we started talking about last week is where we're going to start. In chapter 18, the emphasis moves from the judgment upon the religious aspects of Babylon to what happens to commercial Babylon. We can see that while the destruction of religious Babylon was attributed to the beast, the destruction of political and commercial Babylon will come directly from God. So this is what we know, that God is the one that is going to destroy commercial Babylon. God is the one that is going to annihilate the city. Now, we also remember that this is a parenthesis where we're at right now in chapter 17 and 18. It's a parenthesis. This, all these events happen uh, probably somewhere around chapter 11 and chapter 12. And so successively, we know that this is not happening just prior to the marriage supper of the Lamb. But here, literally, what we have is the commercial Babylon. All the destruction that's taking place is taking place because God is destroying it. And that is happening uh, during probably somewhere around the bold judgments uh, that we talked about a few weeks ago. In verse 2, he says, the angel cried mightily with a strong voice saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. The phrase is fallen, is fallen emphasizes dual judgment on ecclesiastical Babylon and commercial Babylon and enforces that the fall is final. In other words, that whenever uh, uh, the great Babylon is destroyed, it will not rise up again. In other words, evil is done. Are you with me? Evil is coming to an end. You realize that when we get to chapter number 19 and we begin... Uh, uh, literally, um, we begin the, the, the final reign of Jesus Christ, which is at the Battle of Armageddon, at the end of chapter number 19, that evil is done because evil cannot enter into heaven. And so evil is done, and God is literally destroying it, and it is a finality 
of evil. We will find out in just a couple chapters. As a matter of fact, in chapter number 19, we find out that the beast and the false prophet are cast into the lake of fire. And so evil is beginning to end. It is, it, is, it is being destroyed. And I don't know about you, but as I read Revelation chapter 19, Revelation chapter 20, Revelation chapter 21, I get a little bit excited because I know the fate of the enemy. Now don't fall asleep on me tonight, all right? I know the fate of the enemy. I know that all the trouble that he's put me through in all of my life, that one day his destiny is the lake of fire. He, and by the way, let me remind you of something. He knows that too. And so we have to understand that, that as God is doing all this in his perfect plan, that victory is always the Lord's. Victory is always the Lord's. Furthermore, Babylon is described as the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. This is a vivid threefold picture of the demonic influences controlling Babylon. Now, you, and I want to be very cautious here because I don't want to cross any boundaries. But demonic activity is real. I want you to understand that. Okay? Now, there is a difference between possession and oppression. Okay? A, a, a saved person, someone that has Jesus Christ living within them, cannot be possessed by a demon, okay? When we look at all throughout the Word of God, we see that, that uh, Jesus himself cast out demons. As a matter of fact, he cast them into pigs, and they fell over the side of the cliff, and they committed suicide. I'm sorry. That was a bad joke. All right. Um, but demonic activity is still real today. It's still a real thing. But a saved person cannot be possessed. But a saved person can certainly be oppressed. Satan can begin to work in a person's life so much that, that they get discouraged and they become oppressed by the enemy. And what we have to understand is that as a Christian, that there is strong demonic influences controlling portions of our world and portions of people. And so what we have to realize is that even though that's happening, that God is still greater than all of that. God is still in control of all of that. Uh, and, and we're going to talk about that more in the future um, as we come back from um, in the spring, or excuse me, in the fall. Um, the commercial aspects of Babylon the Great had intoxicated people of the world with riches and pleasures. For the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of their delicacies or their luxuries. Um, people were very rich. People were very wealthy uh, in, in commercial Babylon. They, they waxed rich uh, through and had many luxuries. In, eight, in chapter 18, verse number 4, John hears another voice from heaven that says, Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins, and that you receive not her plagues. The plagues refer to the vials of wrath in chapter number 16 that we've already discussed, which is further evidence uh, uh, the events of chapter 17 and chapter 18 precede chapters 15 and chapter number 16. And I don't want you to get bogged down in that. That's just uh, pertinent information for you. There are two reasons given for the command to be separated from Babylon, and they are given in chapter number 18, verses 5 and 6, and also in verses 7 and 8. In verses 5 and 6 it says, For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered 
her iniquities. This is very important. Very important. Look at me for a moment. When you become saved, what happens to your iniquities? What does the Bible say? Yeah, they're as far as the east is from the west, right? That's what the Bible says. Uh, they're, they're cast into the sea never to be remembered, right? That's what the Bible says. Here is the only place in the word of God where God talks about remembering someone's iniquities. Look what it says, verse number five. For the sins have reached unto heaven and God hath remembered her iniquities. So you got to remember something. God gave his only son for who? For us. What are we? Sinners. And so the Bible says that her sin reached the heavens. Meaning this, that they have sinned and, and, and the disgustingness of Babylon has reached the point where God is angry because he gave his own son for those sins. And now the people are sinning and sinning in such a vile way. And it's literally reaching the heavens. And God says, and I remember their sins. That is going to prove to you, if you remember, that was back in chapter 15 and 16. That's going to prove to us one thing. That the wrath of God is real. Because we look at all the vials and we look at all the trumpets and we look at all the seals and we look at all those judgments and we say, boy, that's terrible. How, could, how is that even possible? It's possible because of the vileness and the terribleness of the sins of the people whenever this is taking place. Remember the Bible told us many times throughout these judgments that the people refused to repent. They refused to repent. Verses 9 through 19 describe the anguish resulting from the judgment upon Babylon. Three groups are specified as mourning while they see Babylon literally go up in smoke. We see the kings in verses 9 and 10. We see the merchants in uh, verses 11 through 17, the A part. And we see the shipmasters in 17b through verse 19. So three groups of people that are mourning. In chapter 18, verses 9 through 19, the phrase, alas, alas, is used three times. We find it in verse number 10, we find it in verse number 16, and we find it in verse number 19. The English word, alas, only partly conveys the meaning of the Greek word. It's the same word translated, woe. Do you remember in Revelation chapter number 9 and verse, Revelation chapter number 11, the angel saying, this is the first of the, the three woes? That's right. Do you remember that? And the woes were what? They were judgments. And so here, the, the word alas um, is translated in that same Greek word as woe. In chapter 18, it is translated alas because the context denotes a sense of grief as well as horror. Because literally, they are watching this city, in essence, go up in smoke. And so there's grief because they've lost everything. And there's horror because they know the judgment of God is at hand. Although the earth mourns, heaven rejoices over the desolation of Babylon. Three classes on earth mourn, the kings, the merchants, and the mariners. Likewise, three groups rejoice in heaven in chapter 18 and verse number 20. And that's the saints, the apostles, and the prophets. Why are they rejoicing? They're rejoicing because God is the victor. In other words, Babylon had slain the saints, but now God slays Babylon. 
which is the answer to the martyr's prayer that we talked about in chapter number 6, verses 9 through 11. Remember the martyrs around the throne? What were they asking for? Vengeance. That's right, revenge. And this is the answer to their prayers. The great millstone cast into the sea in chapter 18 and verse number 21 symbolizes the utter destruction of Babylon. Verses 22 and verse 23 amplify the end of the affluent existence that characterized the lifestyle of this era. The musicians of Babylon are now silent. The craftsmen who produced the luxurious goods are now gone forever. The sins of Babylon were numerous, but her destruction was a result of what verse 24 says. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and all that were slain upon the earth. Can I tell you something? That God always fights for his people. Always. No matter what you're up against, no matter what you face in your life, God is always going to fight for you. All right, we're going to move on. I know Revelation chapter 17 and 18 were deep, and all of us took a deep breath, and we're glad we're over it, all right? Um, <laughs> uh, now we go to the fun part. And uh, really, this is the turning point in the book of Revelation. We, we, have, we have studied 18 chapters. Can you believe it? I mean, we started way back in, uh, I believe it was the 1st of September. And uh, here we are finally, 18 chapters later, fixing to start chapter number 19. We have seen all the churches, we've seen the rapture take place, and we began to see the judgment of God. We saw the grace of God interwoven uh, into the destruction, and now we finally have gotten to chapter number 19, where literally for the Christian, it's all victory now. Now we have some judgments coming, don't get me wrong. There'll be some sorrowfulness still in heaven, certainly. But now we are going to watch God become the victor. The thing that we have talked about and, and, and shared about for, for, th- for, for some 2,000 years now, we've been preaching about, is now in Revelation chapter 19 and 20 and 21 and so forth are, are now coming to pass. It is, it is God claiming his church and claiming the victory. So we're right at the top of chapter number 19 uh, in your outline there. Uh, so after the fall of ecclesiastical and commercial Babylon, there was a call to rejoice. And the opening verses in chapter 19 records a fourfold hallelujah response. Look at me in chapter number 19, and uh, we are going to uh, uh, look now in chapter number 19, uh, the first eight verses. And after these things, here we go. I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, what are they saying? Hallelujah. What a great word. Salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord. And I know I sometimes do this all the time in the fact that I get hung up on small words in the Bible. But look at the next word. Guess what that is? That is a possessive word. It is the Lord our God. You know, it's interesting to me as you read the book of Revelation, and I didn't have time to do this through this study because we'd have probably taken three years doing it. But if you go through and you begin to look at all of the uh, prepositional phrases throughout the book of Revelation, that they begin, what happens is, is they begin to go from a third-party God to a God that is now ours or a possessive God. And uh, we go from victory beginning in, in or, or the churches talking about this God and how they 
sinned against the Lord and all these kind of things. And the two churches that had no fault, the Bible says that they were, that God was our God. The other five churches, you won't find that phrase. And then as you move on through the book of Revelation and the torment that begins to happen, what we begin to see is we begin to see God become possessive throughout all of this. And now Revelation chapter 19 opens with the words, unto, this is the prepositional phrase, the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, for he hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication, and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said... Hallelujah. And her smoke rose up forever and ever. Here we go, verse number four. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshiped God that sat on the throne saying, Amen and Hallelujah. There's something, there's a, there's a pattern here. You know what the pattern is? It's okay to say Amen. Did you see that? Did you see that it's okay to say Hallelujah. We're going to talk about that word in just a minute. That word can be translated hallelujah too. You ever heard somebody go hallelujah? You know, that's okay. It's, it's in the Bible. It's all right. All right, good. You're all looking at me like this guy has lost it. All right. And a voice came out of the throne saying, Pray, oh, we were close. Praise our God. Look at this. We're, we're going to be doing some shouting in heaven. And all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great what? Oh, who is that? That's us. Hang on, because you're about to do something. You ready? And, and, and I heard, where, where'd I go? And, and as the voice of many what waters, and as a voice of mighty thundering, saying... Pastor, what am I going to do in heaven? Sounds like you're going to say hallelujah. <laughs> Let's just get some practice while we're down here on earth, all right? For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. For the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen... Is the righteousness of the saints. What a great thought. Amen, brother, right? That's good. That's good. Sunday morning, we're going to get a bunch of hallelujahs, brother. Hallelujah. All right. Um, it's good. It's a fourfold hallelujah response. Listen, God has won. Now, let me, let me tell you something just a moment. Did you know that Revelation 19 did not just end up in the Bible yesterday? You realize that? It's been in the Bible a long time. Which means that God has always had the victory. Always. This is not a new revelation. This is, he's had the victory from the very beginning of time. The Bible says in John chapter 1 and verse number 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You know what the Word was? The word was, I've got the victory. So why is it that we have a tendency to live in defeat? There's no reason. We should live in hallelujah. I thought about naming our church, hallelujah land. Right? That's the land that we should be living in, you know? This is the promised land. This is it. 
having a little bit of heaven on earth. The word hallelujah is the Greek form of the Hebrew word hallelujah and has the identical meaning, praise the Lord. It, like amen, has become a universal word and is an acclamation of praise to God with the highest possible sense of reverence, awe, and praise. It is, it, he is worthy to be praised. The word hallelujah appears four times in Revelation 19, 1 through 6. This is very interesting, but nowhere else in the New Testament. Nowhere else. As a matter of fact, it's only found in the book of Psalms in the Old Testament. Why? A couple of reasons. One, yes, Jesus defeated hell and the grave and death on Calvary. There is no doubt. But the ultimate victory is not until the end of the world. Revelation chapter 19. Why is it found in the book of Psalms then, Pastor? Because of David. David found himself, I believe, with all my heart. And some would disagree with me, and it's okay to be wrong. <laughs> I was going to let that take effect. Um, but I believe the reason that David could use it is because I believe with all my heart that through all that David went through in his life, he was probably the closest man to God that ever walked the face of this earth. And he, among anybody, knew what the awe and the reverence of God really was. Because see what happened to David? David messed up, right? Do you remember? Remember David messed up? Okay. That's what we remember about David. Remember David had a sling in his hand, and we remember David messed up. But that's not all that David did. David recovered from his mistake. You know how he recovered? He recovered by seeking the face of God in the most humble way possible. And you know what God did in return for him? The only man in the Bible where God said that David was a man after my own heart. That's right. You see, that, you know what that tells me? That tells me whenever I mess up, that if I'll just go humbly back to God and seek him, that I can also be a man or a woman after God's own heart. Amen? That's good. That's good. In Revelation chapter 19, there are four shouts of hallelujah for the final fall of Babylon. Thus, in stark contrast to the events on earth of torment, weeping, and wailing, all heaven bursts forth in celebration and praise to God for the destruction of Babylon. Number one, the marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage supper of the Lamb. This is a great event, I'm telling you. Uh, this is when it begins to get exciting. The marriage supper of the Lamb. Verse 7 says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. The New Testament has four analogies of Christ in the church. I'm going to need some help. We did this a few weeks ago. We need to do it again. I need somebody to look up 1 Corinthians chapter number 3, verses 9 through 11. Who will do that for me? First Corinthians, Miss Tracy, all right? I need somebody to look up 1 Peter chapter number 2. Who will do 1 Peter chapter number 2? Come on. Wesley will do it. Okay. And then I need somebody to look up Ephesians chapter number 5, verse 23. Chris. I mean, uh, Daniel, sorry. I looked at Chris and, sorry, my bad. Anyways, all right. 1 Corinthians chapter number 3. The, the uh, uh, four analogies. You said there's only three up there. We'll get to the fourth one in just a minute. 1 Corinthians chapter number 3, verses 9 through 11. Miss Tracy.
Good. So the analogy of the church is that it's the foundation. It's the foundation. And who laid the foundation? Who laid the foundation for the church? Christ, that's right. God laid the foundation for the church. All right, uh, 1 Peter chapter number 2, Wesley, verses 4 through 8. Sorry, verse 4 through 8. Good. So in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, God refers to the church as a stone, and he is the chief cornerstone, okay? So we, we have the foundation, we have a stone. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23, uh, Daniel. Good. So here in uh, verse 23, we have Christ as the head of the church, the fourth analogy is also in Ephesians chapter number 5, uh, verses 25 through 31, where the church is described as a bride destined to be married to the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. Do you realize tonight that you are the bride of Christ? Okay, I, want, I, I, I think we hear that, but I don't think we get it, all right? I need you to put on your imagination hat for a moment, all right? The stage is set. Are you with me? It's beautiful. The candelabras are everywhere. The, the band is playing. Uh, 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 the tuxes have arrived and they're up on the stage. And all of a sudden, the pianist begins or the organist begins the phrase or, the, or playing the song, Here Comes the Bride. What does everybody do? They stand up. Why do they stand up? I don't know. This is what we do. <laughs> That's right. Because all eyes are on the what? The bride. I'm going to tell you. I got married uh, August the 5th of the year 2000 on purpose. Two reasons. One, my dad's birthday is the 6th, so I wouldn't remember the day. Or so I wouldn't forget the day. I got married in the year 2000, so if somebody asked me how long I've been married, I'll say, what year, it is, what year is it? 2016, we've been married almost 16 years. It was on purpose. But I remember as we stood on that day, and I'll never forget this. The pastor was standing up here, and uh, we all walked in together. He's standing here. I'm standing right next to him. They start playing that song, In Comes Melissa, uh, in her white gown, beautiful, amazing unbelievable and that pastor turns around and looks at me and this is what he said just so you know it's all about her 
And you know what? He was right. Because, I mean, it was like the moment. It was like surreal. You know, everybody's attention turned to the bride. Can I tell you something? That this is our moment. For all of eternity, for all of our lives, our eyes have been fixed on who? God. Now, I really need you to understand this because I don't think you're getting it. Angels. Let's talk about angels for a moment. Do you believe there's angels in heaven? Okay. There is something that's very interesting to me. The Bible says that when one person accepts Jesus Christ, what happens? The angels rejoice. But do you understand that the angels do not understand salvation? Because they can't be saved. They're spirits. They don't know what salvation is. They don't understand that you were once condemned and now you're a child of God. Do you know why they rejoice? They rejoice because of the sacrifice Jesus made on the cross. They're rejoicing because of him. Now, it's very interesting to me throughout all the word of God. When they talk about angels in typical fashion, it normally says there's a heavenly host. Look up that word in the Greek and Hebrew. That means a lot. A host is a lot. So think about it. Marriage supper of the lamb. All eyes are on the bride. Whose eyes? The angels. Jesus Christ. This is what he's doing. The same thing that I was doing. If you watch the video of my wedding, this is what you'll see. A 20-year-old man standing next to a pastor, bawling his eyes out and has no idea why. I was overtaken. Are you with me? It was an amazing moment. <laughs> that is what we are now encountering. It is the moment where Jesus Christ receives his bride. All the torture, all the torment, all the suffering. That he did on Calvary. Now his reward is in front of him. Let me just put it to you this way. And I don't know any other way to put it to you. This is no ordinary supper. This is no ordinary dinner. This is literally, if I could put it to you this way, with all due respect... This is God's honeymoon. This is God bringing into fold the people of God that have turned their lives over and trusted him. And now the bride is destined to be married to the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. What an amazing, amazing time this is going to be. 
early in Jesus' earthly ministry when he was asked why his disciples were not fasting like the Pharisees and the followers of John the Baptist, Jesus gave them a remarkable reply. Matthew chapter 9 and verse number 15, Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and then shall they fast. Jesus said they have no reason to mourn. They have no reason to fast because the bridegroom is here with them, me. But there's going to come a day when I'll be taken away, and then they shall fast. Can I tell you that this is the day when we will no longer depart from Jesus Christ. This is the victory. The array of the bride is described in Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 and 8. The delicate balance between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of the believers is made clear. And the two phrases that were given, hath made herself ready and hath granted. Look with me in chapter number 19, verse number 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen and clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. It's amazing to me how people can get messed up on wording in the Bible. This is one of those passages of scriptures, verses 7 and 8, that people get hung up on. And let me explain it to you. The church's garments are fine linen, clean and white. In contrast to the, clothing of the, or to the clothing of the great mother of prostitutes, who was arrayed in purple and scarlet color. Of course, that was uh, Babylon. The bride's clothing is explained as the righteousness of the saints in chapter 19 and verse number 8. The Greek word translated righteousness is in the plural and is translated righteous deeds. This means the wedding garment will be made up of the righteous deeds performed in life. Did you see that? Are you with me? Do the things that we do on earth matter to God? Do they matter? Absolutely. Now, this does not, this is where people get hung up imply a work salvation. Uh, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to and they take me to this passage of scripture and this is what they say. Verse number seven. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife hath made herself ready. She's made herself ready. In other words, she has worked to make herself ready. So certainly we're going to work our way to heaven. It's important that we don't misinterpret the word of God. This does not imply a work salvation, but rather a delicate balance between God's grace and our obedience response to it. The bride is given the wedding garment. He, she is given the wedding garment, but she hath made herself ready. Do you see that? Let me make it an analogy for you. I remember my wife was in Michigan. I was in Florida. We were 18 hours away from each other for the last uh, year and a half prior to we, till we got married. Long distance relationship. Wow, that was hard, but it worked out, as you can tell. Um, I remember getting a call one day, and she said, guess what we're going to do? I said, what? She said, we're going to David's bridal. I said, Who's David? <laughs> do I need to know about David, you know? And she said, it's a, it's a wedding dress shop. I said, oh, okay, great. 
She said, we're going to go pick out my wedding dress. I said, okay. So she goes, and uh, a little while later, I get a phone call. She's all excited on the other end of the phone. I found it. I said, great, that's wonderful. Now, her dad is very unique. Her dad, when they graduated from high school, it may even have been before, have you ever seen those really tall plastic Coke uh, containers that you use to uh, save your coins with? Have you ever seen those? That's how her dad paid for her wedding dress. That's what he did. He would save all of his change. And that's how he bought her wedding dress. So I asked, did, did your dad bring the Coke bottle? She said, no. He took it to the bank. And I said, okay. Now let me tell you what happened. Her dad paid for the dress. Her dad did not help her get ready on that day. Right? Same way it is with God. God provided the garment salvation. We are the ones that had to make ourselves ready by accepting the gift of salvation. Does that make sense? All right. Verse 9 contains the fourth of seven beatitudes found in the book of Revelation. He said, Blessed are they which are called into the marriage supper of the Lamb. The other beatitudes are found in chapter 1 and verse number 3. Blessed are those who read. Um, Chapter 14, verse 13. Chapter 16, verse 15. Chapter 20, verse 6. And chapter 22. And verse number 14. The marriage of the Lamb is mentioned in verse 7. And the marriage supper is here uh, as we read verse 9 in just a moment. The supper followed the wedding and apparently all the hosts of heaven were invited to join the celebration. Look at verse number 9 and 10. And he saith unto me, right blessed are they which are called into the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, these are the true sayings of God. And here we go. And I fell at his feet to what? Worship him. And he said unto me, See thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, what's happening here is is that they are falling at John's feet. And he is saying, No, do not worship me. Worship God. Jesus. The certainty of this beatitude is emphasized by the phrase, these are the true sayings of God. John is so overwhelmed by the angel's revelation of the marriage of, or sorry, I I said that wrong. John's falling at the angel's feet. John is so overwhelmed by the angel's revelation of the marriage of the Lamb that he fell at his feet to worship him. And the angel quickly says, see thou do it not. And then informs John that as an angel, he is a fellow servant and not to be worshipped. Indeed, worship belongs exclusively to God. We are not to bow down and worship anyone or anything except him. We also find in chapter 19 and verse number 10 what all true prophecy is about. All true prophecy is about the testimony of Jesus. We said from the very beginning, chapter 1 and verse number 1, that when we talk about prophecy, that the most important thing is what? That we focus on Jesus. We don't focus on events. We focus on him. Next time that we get together, we will talk about the second coming of Christ and the battle of Armageddon, all right? We will not have Wednesday night next week. There will be no Wednesday night services next week due to um, spring break. 
And uh, so next Wednesday night we will not have church. But when we come back the following Wednesday night, uh, we will pick up right here in the book of Revelation and finish the second coming and the battle of Armageddon. All right? Well, thanks for coming tonight. Um, If a few of you men have a few minutes, um, I would greatly appreciate if you would help us. We've cleared the stage from everything from Sunday, but it all needs to go upstairs, and it needs to go into this room right here, and I will unlock it. Um, All these props and everything, um, and then um, if we get to it, all the instruments need to be brought back up onto the stage. Um, That would really help us um, in uh, getting everything ready for Sunday. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for our day. Thank you for the many blessings. Thank you for uh, the word of God. Thank you for its encouragement. Lord, I pray tonight that we've been encouraged uh, knowing that you are the one that has the victory. And Lord, we're thankful for that. Lord, we love you. Give us a great rest of our week. And we look forward to being back again on a Sunday. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful, wonderful rest of the week.